Welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. And me, Caroline Phillips. This is a podcast where we use our joint 35 years experience working in the pre-hospital arena to speak to a whole card array of specialists about all things related to ambulance work. We really hope you enjoy these episodes for your own CPD, but please do remember to work within your own guidelines and local policies when in practice. So welcome back to the podcast with me, Owen Walker. In this session, we're going to look at infant resuscitation. So we're going to examine a recent publication by the Clinical Practice Development Manager of the Advanced Paramedic Practitioner Scheme, Mark Faulkner, which was featured in the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine. So the case study involved the resuscitation of a BF cardiac arrest in a three-month-old infant. So the link to the case report will be found in the show notes and in the episode, and we're going to be speaking with the author or one of the authors of the paper, uh, Mark Faulkner, to explore the case and some of the wider learning points around resuscitation in infants. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hello, Owen. So this isn't the first time we've had you on. I believe we've had you on a number of times. Uh, this time, more so in, in the capacity for looking at resuscitation in, in infants. Um, so any, anyone who's, who's not familiar with Mark, uh, you are the clinical practice lead for the Advanced Paramedic Practitioner Scheme in London. So in essence, critical care embedded within the ambulance service in London. Uh, am I correct in saying that, Mark? Yeah, so my, my job title is I'm Clinical Development Manager of Critical Care for the London Ambulance Service. And that involves looking after the Advanced Paramedic Practitioner Programme, amongst another number of other things. And with a colleague, I look after our resuscitation portfolio too for the service. Fantastic, fantastic. So Mark, um, should we just jump right into it really, if that's okay? So, because it really is quite a niche uh, area of resuscitation um, because it is quite a rare pathology to see as a paramedic, doctor or nurse. So Mark, could you speak to how rare cardiac myopathies in children are and maybe even that indeed how rare VF is in children and infants? I think, Owen, when we start to talk about cardiac arrest in children, we need to talk about how rare cardiac arrest is in children to start with. And actually, the, when you look at some of the figures coming out of London and the rough numbers in London is the LAS um, who are taking somewhere around at the moment 6,999 calls per day, attend circa 10,000 patients each year in cardiac arrest of which 4,000 are resuscitated um, and approximately 8% of those resuscitation attempts are in patients less than 35 years old. So what we describe as young cardiac arrests. And the numbers when you start to look at small children are really much smaller than that. And when you look at number of cardiac arrests for under one in London, it's just under one a day. So it's about 300 a year, um, which is very small in a system that's managing uh, 10,000 cardiac arrests and 4,000 resuscitations each year. And these are figures, that ca these are now the figures kind of coming to you are from a paper by colleagues of mine, Professor Fothergill and Dr. Moore that was published back in 2008 off the top of my head, um, that looked at our data on under 35 year old cardiac arrests. And this was a study that looked at cardiac arrests between 2003 and 2007. So quite large study when you kind of put it into context and no patient under one in that study had VF. So actually even within a system that's as busy as London is in respect to cardiac arrest we had not a single patient in that period who presented under one in VF. They are really rare but you've still got to be prepared for them and you've still got to understand that they are there. Um, and we highlighted in the paper and colleagues of mine who wrote the paper kind of highlighted exactly how rare they were um, within our system. But they are absolutely there and we've got to be prepared for them. And but you also have to put this into context that this is a rare event, even in a busy cardiac arrest system. 
Indeed, indeed. And so because it's so rare, I, I suppose in essence, it's, it's therefore so essential when you do um, come up against these cases that, that, that everyone is, is prepared, you're ready, you're, you're well-versed, because this might be the only, you know, due to the numbers, it could be the only instance that a paramedic might see of of VF in, in an infant or indeed a child in their entire career. But just looking at some of the statistics around succession of these resuscitations, Mark, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of education around, you know, oxygenation um, and high quality chest compressions um, over any over intubation and uh, looking at some of the more the fundamentals and essentials of resuscitation. Do you think maybe this has contributed to the succession of resuscitation in this cohort? I think it has, Owen. And just to take a step back to what you were talking about earlier, if you put this into the context of my own practice, um, when I was in full-time clinical practice in APP, along with yourself and other colleagues in London, we were managing somewhere individually between 50 and 100 cardiac arrests each per year. And certainly I was at the top end of that because that's just my luck, I think. Um, so most of us were managing over the four or five years that I was in full-time clinical practice doing critical care, around 400 cardiac arrests. And when you look at that, in terms of under 18 VF, I saw four. And that is in a system with massive exposure to cardiac arrest management. And that is at the top end. I've got colleagues who've worked in our system who haven't seen a child in VF in a system that's probably, probably, and I say this with a sense of caution on a podcast where somebody will always come back and say, we see more than you. In a system that I think and the clinicians in it are probably seeing more cardiac arrest than any other single system for paramedics in Europe, if not in the world. I wait, to, I wait to read that in the chat comments afterwards. <laughs> um, but we have also seen a change. Um, and I'm not sure I should say this on a podcast. Me and Owen have known each other for a very long time and went to school together and went to university. Uh, when I say school, kind of paramedic school at university now over 20 years ago. And I can remember, as I'm sure you can, Owen, training officers and instructors telling us there's only one thing you need to do in kids is you need to put them in the back and you need to drive them to hospital. And that still exists in pre-hospital care. And I find this completely bizarre in that we spent a lot of time talking about optimising adult resuscitation and making sure that an understanding that in the adult population, the patients who survive in the main are patients who gain a ROSC on scene. And that's because of the... Um, lack of efficacy of chest compressions in a moving ambulance um, and actually that you need to preserve your cerebral and your cardiac perfusion with good quality resuscitation. And that makes absolute sense. And we now see and we understand and there are many systems where actually very few patients in cardiac arrest or who remain in cardiac arrest are conveyed and attempts are made to gain a ROSC on scene. Now, We've then seen the invent of mechanical CPR for adults, which allows and should allow some level and some quite good evidence to suggest some very effective um, ongoing chest compressions while patients are moved. And that's started a little bit to change some of our paradigm in adult resuscitation. So we can start thinking about the patient who might benefit from an additional intervention. And at some other day, we'll talk about pre-hospital ECMO and some of the work we're doing on that with colleagues like Ben Singer and Simon Finney in London um, around how we actually may with some of these patients think actually this is a patient that we need to move really early but we can do that with mechanical CPR you can't do that with children there are no real mechanical CPR devices that fit an infant and I would suggest to most of the listeners on this actually doing optimal chest compressions um, to get an infant downstairs whilst moving is really challenging. And yeah, I'm saying, yeah. And those who work in London will know this. Nobody lives on the ground floor in London. Lifts were not designed for ambulance clinicians, let alone me. And actually, actually it's really difficult to move these patients. And I think we're seeing a shift, rightly so, to working out which group of patients do we need to try 
and get Ross gone on scene before we move. And by doing that, I mean that we we're not there forever, but we are there making sure that we've got a quality period of resuscitation, that we get unsure oxygenation. We make sure the cardiac rhythm is adequately monitored with defibrillation if appropriate. And we may even think about the first line of therapy in terms of drugs prior to moving. And there is some really good evidence, and I'm sure Owen will stick some of the references to this perhaps um, in the text with this. There's some really good evidence now um, from the US and colleagues in the US and kind of around how and the effect of optimizing on-scene resuscitation and making sure that the critical interventions are done before you move to hospital. And this is an incredibly passionate subject because I've been involved in pre-hospital care since the late 90s. And we've had years of people saying to us, just pick the child up, move them to hospital. Um, and actually it's starting to say, is that the right thing to do? And does it affect outcome if we do things slightly differently? So it goes on from that, sorry, Owen, it goes on yeah. from that um, to saying, actually, this is going to be a very difficult group of patients to get really good clinical evidence in. Those who know me, I kind of jump up and down and making sure we have an evidence base for what we do and understanding that just because we think it's right doesn't mean it's right. Um, but it is going to be the group that actually we're really challenged around the evidence base for, because it's going, when you're talking about calls, which are incredibly rare. And in the five year kind of 2003, 2007, I know it's an old paper that we had some data in London where we had no single patient presenting VF under one. How on earth are you going to do a study in that? So what we've got to do is use our best clinical thinking and understanding to work out what should go on. And for, don't for one second think I'm saying these patients shouldn't be moved in all cases, but I do think we need to make sure that we optimize the resuscitation on scene, make sure there's really good quality basic life support. Yeah. And then think about what we need to do rather than perhaps the mantra and the picture around, let's just pick these patients up and go to hospital. But we have to put this into a human factors point of view too. This is something that we are so uncomfortable with. Those of us who even do resuscitation regularly, which is, let's be completely honest, those of us who are paramedics, resuscitation on a frontline ambulance is a relatively rare event. And our data in a busy system in London is probably a paramedic on a frontline ambulance will see a cardiac arrest every 10 to 12 weeks. That's changed a little bit with COVID where we've seen a slight increase in our cardiac arrest numbers at certain points last year. But it's still a rare event. And then you put that into the context of even in an adult cardiac arrest, where circa 20% present in VF, if you're only seeing one every 12 weeks and 20% VF, it, how often do you see a VF? And then how often do you see a child in cardiac arrest? Um, and where you're looking at an under one, where you're looking at kind of 300-ish cardiac arrests, it's quite really quite a rare event. And when we've got rare events, actually, and we're uncomfortable with them, the natural human reaction is to kind of want to be out of there. The natural human thing we want to do is get rid of that patient. In the nicest possible way, we want to hand that patient over to somebody else and we want to go back to doing what we're very familiar with. And that's really difficult because actually what you have to do is slow yourself down. You need to think about what do I need to do here? what do I need to do en route and where am I going to take the patient and having that as a planned intervention and to quote many of my colleagues and it's a phrase I dislike because it yeah great slide is it's about that mental model and being able to rehearse that job in your head and have a think about what that call um, means and how you think about that management of that patient yeah um, prior so you've kind of got this rehearsed what do I need to do and apply that when you see the patient? Because it is so rare. 
Mark, you're absolutely spot on there. And, you know, the, the mitigating human factors. If there was ever a call that I've been to, and like you said, you know, 20 years in London, I've been to some horrendous traumatic and medical uh, pediatric arrests. It's, you know, uh, one which would activate the amygdala and cause you to panic. It, it would be these calls because there's always that second patient. There's always their family. There's always a malaise and, and a freneticism around the scene. And it's actually, you're right, it's actually been very purposeful and critical and being able to silence your amygdala so you can bring forward some very purposeful essential and um probably in the hierarchy of need probably the most the the, the most uh, uh empirically robust um uh, interventions such as ventilation such as consistency of compression such as sharing a mental model it's just nice, calm scenes so you can get the pads on. And but but you, you are sl actually slowing people down in that in that malaise because that's when you start to start to remember things and start to stop missing things, is when you you almost have to slow it down to become methodical. It's that kind of thing, and we we talk about it a lot in the system in London about slowing down to speed up and making sure that your actions are deliberate, that you think about what's going on. <laughs> And you bring a sense of control and calm to the resuscitation to allow that resuscitation to be optimized and making sure we're doing exactly the right thing. Um, and we're making sure that we're thinking about reversible causes. Now, we're talking about a case study that's been published around a young child in ventricular fibrillation. That's incredibly rare, but it's also worth remembering it exists, but also remembering all the other bits, which is, and you only have to look at the recent ILCOR guidelines and the European guidelines and the UK guidelines where we practice, that actually hypoxia is what is often killing these children. And actually it's the reversal of that hypoxia really early. Um, and making sure that we think about that as well as all of the other stuff and we're doing the basics impeccably well so and i think we need to think about um um this and the, i think i've said this on this podcast before to you it pains me when we talk about basic life support because it's not basic it's essential life support everything else is decoration if you want to think about that. The bit that we know that makes a difference to patients, be those adults and children, is good quality basic or basic life support or essential life support. So ventilation and good quality chest compressions and then defibrillation where appropriate. And that's the bit that we've got to think about. And we need to stop talking about basic life support and start talking about essential life support because that's the bit that makes a difference to patients. Very much so, absolutely. So looking, and, and you're right, it's quite a, very, a rare pathology uh, because Mark, I know you do quite a, a large portfolio of work. Some of your portfolio is the medical legal expert witness work. And, you know, you and me in the past have seen the fruition of, of or sequelae of, of, of medical pathology in adulthood, such as um, cardiac myopathy. Uh, causing VF in an adult patient, or indeed un, unexplained AF, which then causes a stroke, an ischemic stroke, and in in the adult domain. So it's quite rare to get a, a cardiac myopathy causing VF, causing the sequelae of VF in in, in this infant cohort. But what, in, in, to your mind, what are some of the red flags that 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 can be observed in in cardiac myopathies that that anyone either listening to this or indeed that's been to someone with a cardiac myopathy, adult or, or, or indeed child, should be aware of? So I think probably, Owen, it's helpful for us to talk about um, undiagnosed structural or electrical cardiac disorder. I think myopathies and large and abnormally structured hearts are absolutely part of that. But I think the bigger thing for us as pre-hospital clinicians to think about is the undiagnosed um, cardiac disorders, be those electrical, be those structural, rather than think about specific myopathies and bits like that. Now, they're they are absolutely out there. And the bit we don't know, and the bit that's so challenging with this, is that often when we talk about the undiagnosed, is actually we don't really know sometimes how many of these cause 
cardiac arrest. Um, and that some of that is around how good pathology post-death is. Some of it is these are conditions that we don't truly understand, and there are some that we just really don't know. And there will be a number of children who classically got put into the kind of sudden infant death syndrome boxes um, a number of years ago where they had undiagnosed cardiac conditions. And that, in all fairness, is more likely to be the electrical channelopathies than the myopathies. And the reason I say that is because often the myopathies are detectable at post-mortem by gross examination. Um, and I think what is helpful for all of us is to have a red flag in our head and this reminder about risk factors for undiagnosed cardiac conditions, be those electrical or structural, um, that can go on to cause aberrant arrhythmias and particularly ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. And you kind of say about warning signs, and I think there are a number of things. Be highly concerned about collapse, sudden collapses in young people. Always think about the patient who's fitted and the patient who, so the transient loss of consciousness as well as the seizures. And the, often we do see some of these children with um, undiagnosed um, cardiac conditions getting an initial diagnosis of epilepsy or seizure related activity because what they're having is transient loss of consciousness and a loss of cerebral perfusion which results in seizure activity so think about those and be very aware of those and I'm sure at some point you'll get I have a colleague who's incredibly passionate about management of TLOC and I'm sure that's something we may be able to talk to on this podcast but I think one of the things we have to do is to have that real high index of suspicion and making sure we get that history, listen to the family history, um, understand what that looks like for the patient with, uh, who's had a transient loss of consciousness. Um, and then think about our assessment. Have we actually looked for evidence of structural heart disease? Have we listened to the heart? <clears throat> yeah, I spent a lot of time doing kind of some teaching around cardiac and I, I kind of get to the point of listen to the heart sounds if they sound abnormal somebody needs to check it I don't really mind whether they've got a pansystolic or a pandiastolic murmur or some weird and wonderful murmur um, if you hear something that doesn't sound an S1 S2 heart sound that's the point at which they need to get followed up have a look at the ECG apply the rules of the normal ECG to it for the age appropriate. You don't need to make the ultimate diagnosis. That's what the experts there are for doing. But it does give you a level of something you can need to refer in. Get the family history. I'm always shocked. I'm always shocked when you listen to these families talk that there are red flags within the history about other unexplained young, young deaths or childhood deaths that are unexplained within the family history so get all of that information um, and make sure that informs your decision making with these patients and have a look at the patient look for those slightly subtle signs um, related to kind of structural cardiac disease and but it's that whole picture and listening and having that real sense of letting that patient um, and listening to that patient so you can kind of understand what's in front of you and understand what might not be abnormal even if you can't get to a diagnosis yourself. So Mark you've mentioned the structural and the electrical components of um, of cardiac myopathy and um, the paper does mention uh, the use of ultrasound just to truly understand what's what's happening in the heart versus palpable pulse versus what's happening on the ECG. Could you speak to the utility of ultrasound in this cohort of patients? So I think we probably should talk about the utility of ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Um, and I, I think, you know, Owen, I'm a big advocate of kind of paramedic ultrasound and how paramedic ultrasound can change the management of cardiac arrest. But this needs to come with a big warning sign. Nobody gets better because you're not put an ultrasound probe on their chest. An ultrasound is an aid to diagnosis. It is not and it's an aid to decision making it's not a treatment in its own right and there is a real danger when we talk about cardiac arrest management um, in that we get distracted by things that don't actually have an evidence base because they're interesting they're at the kind of cutting edge of the field and that we need to be really careful 
that we um, don't let it distract from the stuff that absolutely makes a difference to these patients, which is really good quality by, uh, basic life support or essential life support and defibrillation. What we need to make sure that if we're using adjuncts in the management of the arrest, that they're focused, they're done with people with the appropriate training and experience and that they don't distract. And one of the things I kind of say to people um, is that if you're going to use ultrasound in cardiac arrest, what you do is you put the ultrasound on, you, you get your image while there is ongoing resuscitation, so it's not distracting from that. You get your gain set, you get your depth set. And during that pulse check at the end of the two minute cycle, you record and capture your image. And, but you don't look at the image until you step away from the patient. And then once the resuscitation is continued, you go back and look at the image. And it's only by having people who are really experienced in managing these that you can start to build these additional bits in. Um, and certainly my practice has changed over the last number of years that if I'm starting to use things like ultrasound, I actually will say to somebody else, I want you to lead the resuscitation whilst I have a think about what's going on and see if I can get some additional information. So Owen, you're going to continue to lead it. If anything's getting in the way of good quality chest compressions, you're going to tell me and you must tell me but you're going to let me have a think about this for a few minutes. Um, and actually, then you can do it. But you've got to also have the experience and education to go with it, because actually some of this is really, really subtle. And I, I've had the privilege of listening and being taught by some real experts in ultrasound over the years um, in the UK. And the absolute is the more you understand it, the more complex it gets. And I, I always give the example um, of Professor Tim Harris telling a group of us, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. The right heart dilates in pulmonary embolism related cardiac arrest. That's really useful. But you have to put that in the context of everyone's heart, right heart dilates in the context of cardiac arrest. So how useful truly is it? Um, and I think you've got to have that level of experience. And there are bits of um, cardiac arrest management where I think ultrasound is really useful. And I'd point everyone towards our colleague Nick Brown's paper, which was published, hmm, I think this week um, in the JPP, um, and which looked at ultrasound in the aid of termination of cardiac arrest and ultrasound in cardiac standstill. And again, I think a really interesting kind of paramedic led paper about how that can add something. But you've got to put this into the context. And when you are when you're absolutely at your maximum bandwidth, and you're trying to maximize your bandwidth in cardiac arrest, putting an ultrasound probe onto a child in cardiac arrest, unless you're truly experienced in pediatric um, echo, I'm not sure it adds a huge amount. There may be bits, but I think you've just got to be very aware that it's not distracting you from the other stuff. Indeed, indeed. And, and to that point, actually, you, you like you said, it, it can't it can't interfere with the the um, the coronary perfusion pressure, the just the good, really good systematic chest compressions and oxygenation, uh, because that's got the longevity of survival um, in in those um, in those interventions. But um, so just looking at how it was used in this case, was it, was it used more so just to, just to discern whether the heart was still in a VF pattern? Uh, I think in this case, a lot the, it was around just confirming what you absolutely knew and making sure that you, had, you could see a heart that was contracting and providing that comfort. Because we also know that feeling pulses in the child in cardiac arrest is quite difficult. And one of the things I tend to say to people is find the pulse whilst you've got ongoing chest compressions. You should be able to feel some pulsation. Um, always remember that pulsation is not necessarily equivalent with flow. And that's quite important to keep your head around, but that will tell you where the pulse is. And then when you come off the chest, you can then feel if a pulse is present. I think the ultrasound often is a lot of it is is just people confirming what they think they know. And, and as long as it's not getting in the way of the essentials, that's really important. So Mark, let's loop back around to what you were saying about the human factor components and having someone who stood back in the control room that you can just bounce ideas from and who've got, who've got um, a little bit of a larger picture of, of call time, of, 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 of first 
CPR time of compliance to pre-arrival instructions. How how useful is it having someone stood back in these in these jobs? So we are very privileged in the system I work in in London in that we have embedded clinically led dispatch um, within our system from day one. And this is around having a clinician within the control room environment that is looking and actively seeking out those critical care calls where we think some enhanced clinical support on scene will add benefit. And we have built on that and we've introduced lots of bits of technology to help us. And we are kind of very now integrated with the good SAM technology around video calling of callers. And we've worked very closely with our HEMS colleagues around making sure how we can do that to kind of enhance decision-making. And this is around a system where we have a relatively small number of critical care cases and a small number of cases needing additional clinical support on scene and identifying those from what is a very high volume 999 system or 911 system, depending where you come from. Um, So it's really, really key to what we do in London is having this clinically led dispatch. And this is about having a clinician who's got the bandwidth within the control room environment, who's not managing 8, 10, 15, 20, 25 other resources, uh, who's absolutely focused, as our dispatch staff are, on getting somebody to the call really quickly to think, actually, what additional information might be helpful? What would I need to know? And we've got various modalities in that. We kind of talk about the concept of silent interrogation, which is a clinician dialing in and listening to the 999 call, listening to what's being said, having those kind of slightly bat-esque ears to listen to what's going on in the background. And we've got some true masters of this within our system. And yeah, who can li- who will pick up agonal breathing in the background of a call whilst the caller is still passing their address. Um, and then you've got the options around active interrogation where you can actually ring back the caller listen to understanding what's going on you've got the ability to use video conferencing within that system too to aid that and it's about trying to target it but the other bit that this does um, is that we also then have a clinician who is there and can support the crew on scene um, and can support with actions prior to the arrival of a critical care response be that a little bit of advice and support around optimization of the patient, be that in this case, just reinforcing the best practice that was going on and making sure that the bits that needed to be done were being done. And all of those things are really, I think, truly beneficial. And let's be completely honest, there is some controversy around um, clinical-based dispatch and how you do it. And there are systems that will argue that you don't need to do it. And you can do this through protocolization or training of dispatch staff. I think in a system where we're managing thousands of emergency calls each day, I do think clinician-based dispatch does something um, and adds something. I think it also allows a support and a safety net for the clinicians on the road that actually people can get a very quick answer back about, can you just check this drug dose for me? Uh, Can you just check this calculation? So there's somebody there who can do that instantly that's not quite at the level of that kind of formal on-call top cover arrangement. So there's that bit of it there too. But it's around a little bit of nuancing your dispatch and making sure that your dispatch is targeted. And I think what it allows us to do is make sure we get best value for money um, in a publicly funded healthcare system. That's yours and I, my money, Owen for actually having those extended resources and making sure that we can truly target them to the patient we need. And we, and I think it does add something. And I think we're very privileged in the system in London where we're able to do that. Um, and, we, and one of the challenges we have as we move forward is actually seeing actually how we can evidence that and see what the evidence base looks like for what interventions they add and benefit. Because I think it's absolutely key to our system. So Mark, just moving on, just looking at sort of deviation from protocol in this cohort, because like you said, extremely rare cohort, we actually want really good compliance to the essentials done well. 
Um, and I think if I'm right in saying there is there, there, there's a deviation from protocol in this case, um, quite quite rightly so and quite justifiably. But in the in the utility of a post shock pause, um, when it's difficult to detect a pause, what, what would you say to maybe a broad spectrum of clinicians listening to listening to this podcast um, around sort of deviation from protocol and and when and when not to think about that? So I think. My, my starting point is that we have now internationally an incredibly ro robust process. Yeah. An incredibly robust process for guideline development that looks at making sure that we develop guidelines that are applicable and safe and efficacious across the population. And actually, I think when you start to go outside of those guidelines, you've got to be very sure of the reasons for it. Um, and I think the, 2021 guidelines have actually helped a little bit with this because I think there is some now much clearer guidance about when it might be appropriate um, to do a rhythm check mid-cycle um, and there is some guidelines in the UK that help with that decision making and really provide some clarity. Um, I think you've got to be very careful because we know that chest compressions optimize cerebral and cardiac perfusion and we don't want to break that cycle of chest compressions. I think what was done in this case was an understanding of what the underlying rhythm was and the efficacy of the shock and that's fine if you're absolutely confident um, around what you're doing and you absolutely understand what you're doing but there is a real danger particularly when we're all cerebrally maxed out on these jobs. Um, that actually things slip and we don't quite, and we end up with big gaps in chest compressions. And actually I look at downloads of cardiac arrests on a kind of obsessional basis at times, Owen. And what can't you look at these gaps in these resuscitations where there's no flow and these are from various systems around the world. And it's making sure that we minimize that. And I think part of the reason for sending sometimes some very experienced clinicians to scene is that they, I don't, I don't, I dislike the phrase of going outside of the protocol or going outside of the guidelines. What I see the experienced clinician does on scene is they individualize the guideline to the patients that's in front of them and tweak that guideline to fit the patient that's in front of them whilst maintaining all of the principles of high quality resuscitation. And it's really key that I give a message that actually, that for the vast majority of us, um, actually, we need to be sticking by what the evidence tells us um, is needed for these patients and being very clear that for the vast majority, there is no need to tweak the guidelines. The guidelines work really well. Um, and it's not about going outside the protocol. It's occasionally, it's around the individualization of that protocol to that patient. Mark, could you speak to, you've mentioned the download and how key the download is, because I think there's a lot that can be learned from retrospective analysis, from, um, from debrief, and from just looking at what was done in the moment. Could you speak to the download? Because something me and you have spoken about quite a lot in the past is sort of differentiation of, 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 of refractory VF versus recurrent VF and what someone might assign a refractory VF, but actually is recurrent VF. Could you maybe come back to a definition um, so that we can get it clear in our minds and then and then how that's maybe differentiated on a on a download? So I think we need to be a little bit careful about this because those of us who have got an interest in resuscitation talk about this stuff, but it is kind of mental gymnastics for the sake of mental gymnastics. And I think if I wasn't on a podcast, there'll be a slightly more fruity use of language when I describe what this is. Um, so what we talk about with the refractory VF is VF which fails to cardiovert with the defibrillator. So the shock is delivered and the heart remains throughout that period in ventricular fibrillation, whereas recurrent VF is VF that is successfully cardioverted to any other underlying rhythm, be that an asystole, be that a PEA, be that to a cardiac output. Um, but then VF reoccurs subsequently. Now, the bit that we do not know with this is clearly there is a period of time when the shock is immediately delivered and where the defibrillator monitor is not looking at the cardiac output because of the shock's just been delivered. So there are times where even with a download and on really high quality interpretation software, 
um, that you just will not see the heart in the immediate milliseconds post-shock and what's going on. So we've got to be minded that some of this is just mental gymnastics for the sake of it. Um, now, I, I have this view, and I say this fairly regularly, that I think refractory VF is far rarer than we think it is. And I think people get very excited about refractory VF and we need to stop getting excited about it. Um, and I think we need to understand that the evidence is good quality chest compressions and prompt and effective defibrillation. And then we've got to have a think because actually when you listen to the true experts in VF and the true experts looking at defib downloads, and that's certainly not me, um, is actually that in the vast majority of these patients, they do cardiovert. And when you look at this, and when I sat with the team from Redmond and Stryker looking at some cases recently, actually with their experts, you can see cardioversion on the vast majority of these shocks. You've just got to know what you're looking for to see it. Um, and I think we've got to be kind of minded that we don't wind ourselves up with mental gymnastics um, just for the sake of doing it. But saying that, defib download and defib interpretation is incredibly powerful. And those of you, um, who those APPs who work with me, I'm like a stuck record. When we do case review on a Thursday morning, there's Mark sat there in the corner going, where's the defib download? Why haven't we downloaded the defib? And why are you not downloading defibs? Because actually it tells us something as a system and it tells us something as individuals. I look at my deep cardiac arrest defib downloads and I want to know, why is there a gap in chest compressions there? What was going on there? Was that when we were moving the patient to get some access? Was that whilst we were doing this? Was that what? And that changes my practice as an individual being able to look and critique it. And it's so powerful that you can look back at it and go, oh, what's going on there? Why is there a gap there? What, why, have we got, why have we got a three second gap off the chest there? What was going on? And it makes you focus. And when I look at them and in systems around the country and around the world, and you see gaps, and you go, you say to me, what's going on there? Like, oh, we're managing the airway. And you kind of go, behave. You need to manage the airway with ongoing chest compressions. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, I gave some advice recently to a system outside of the UK where somebody, I said, why have we got 28 seconds off the chest intubation? said okay let's be completely clear if you cannot intubate with chest compressions ongoing you should be doing something else and does that yeah and actually there is a whole argument about whether we should be intubating in these patients anyway those superglottic devices and by looking at those you can tweak your individual practice but the other bit of which is it allows you to understand what's going on as a system and aim to improve your cardiac management as a system and that's the bit that's challenging now um, we have the way we get defib downloads in London today is we plug a computer into the back of the defib. There is a brief amount of swearing whilst the technology kicks in um, and we download it onto a laptop. And that is probably not the 21st century solution to doing this. I know and you're smiling at me because you've lived this experience as well as I have. Um, that actually what we've got to have is a 21st century solution where these are going up to the cloud and these are accessible to the clinicians involved in that resource instantaneously for them to review post-event and for the system to review to understand what bits of learning we need. And people say to me, um, and I'll be completely honest, we've had cases where we've had undetected VF within our systems and I've looked at cases around the country where there's been undetected VF. Um, it's a defib download that allows you to tweak and understand your protocols and understand what's going on in the cardiac arrest management. And people are saying, oh, we don't have that in our system. I say to them, you're not looking for it in your system, which is why you don't have it. So, Mark, could we just before as we're starting to come into land on a conversation, there's a couple of other pointers that I'd just like to cover. Um, one is around debrief, one is around nuances of, of care and just maybe final take-homes. But just, just before we go there, could you just maybe notion to why, even in an infant cohort really, why this cohort of patients from a hypertrophic cardiac myopathy go into VF? Why, why does VF occur in these patients? So, Owen, this sounds slightly like an exam question that I probably had to write an essay on at some point in my past. I think the answer is we've got some good ideas around how this is. And some of this is around, as 
particularly in the cardiomyopathy patients, that you've got an abnormal cellular structure. Therefore, you've got abnormal conduction at the simplest level, um, which leads to ab which leads to a risk of the aberrant cardiac rhythm due to the abnormal structure. I think we also got to be really minded when we talk about this, that there is a little bit of this that we don't yet understand properly. And actually, that what we have is a heart that has a disordered structure and therefore at the simplest level has the potential for a disordered electrical pattern or for there to be that trigger within that um, disordered kind of um electrical circuit within the heart i think we could have huge conversations and i could get out my textbooks and look at stuff and we could talk about it but i think for us pre-hospitally what we've got to understand is abnormal cardiac cellular structure leads to a risk yeah of abnormal electrical activity yeah be that scar in the post-infarct patient be that left ventricular hypertrophy from um hypertension and other such conditions be that the more uh rarer the myopathies and bits like that but effectively the way to think about it and the way i get it into my very simple brain um is that abnormal cellular structure leads to a risk of abnormal electrical activity so mark just panning back really now and looking at some of the non-technical aspects because you know you, you were right in saying earlier on you know these these, these cases are rich in technical and non-technical skills and they, they will push any clinician to the limit of, of both but so why is the hot debrief so so in a non-technical aspect so important in cases such as this the kind of what we tend to refer to as the hot debrief which in the main is in a ambulance setting is a group of clinicians stood outside the back door of the ambulance um, or in the UK where it's raining stood inside or sat inside the ambulance in the pouring rain talking about the job I think is incredibly useful I think what it allows people to do is have a level of cerebral processing of what they've just gone through and understanding the complete picture of that case because often what you'll describe if you're a junior ambulance clinician in that case you may not have quite got your head around exactly what else was going on because you, you were the individual moving the ambulance around in the road to make sure it was facing the right way you were doing those vital tasks to making sure there was enough oxygen upstairs in the house so actually sometimes it's around making sure everyone has the complete picture um, and understands the the nuance because actually sometimes it will be the lead clinician who's gained the history and bits like that and sharing that with the team's understanding it allows some cerebral processing of what's gone on and it allows the immediate kind of discussion of areas of good practice and areas that we might need to look at it in a bit more detail or things that could have been done a bit differently and i think it's a really powerful way of clinicians unpacking the job there and then yeah and sometimes the experienced um debriefer will know exactly where to steer that sometimes it's a technical understanding of what went on sometimes it's purely an emotional well-being check-in and making sure people are okay and in most cases it's a little bit of both and it allows the team yeah to have that immediate kind of right let's just talk through that let's understand what's going on let's air things that we think we could do differently um, and allow people to kind of critique their own practice and critique what the team's done and we put this into the context of and not, most of us work in really busy systems where actually getting the team back together after an event is really challenging particularly in its entirety um, and I think what having a senior clinician does leading that process is allows that to happen there and then that then can decide whether we need to go forward with a more focused colder debrief yeah um, it, it kind of gets described by our emergency planning colleagues as the after action review. What went well? What could we do differently? Are we all OK? Um, and I think that's a very simplistic way of doing something that's really quite useful. And I think as an individual who's undertaken those debriefs and been on the receiving end of those debriefs, we end up with that kind of understanding there and then. And it allows a level of learning and reflection post action there and then without the challenge of trying to get the team back together in two weeks time which is really difficult and let's be honest those who work in ambulance services know it's close to impossible because somebody's off on leave somebody's off on a course all of those things and actually 
by doing that and having that debrief and utility, it really helps people process the call. My, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I couldn't uh, agree with you more, to be fair, and reframing in the moment when all the information and details and emotion is available to you to try and hopefully reprocess and, and and put it into the bigger picture is 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 absolutely key. So, Mark, I'm mindful of time and how long we've been going. So just my sort of finishing question really would be in your in, in your sort of 20 years experience, Mark, in your in your vast experience of, 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 of medical and trauma patients in, in, in pediatric resuscitation, could you speak to some of the nuances and maybe meta themes that, that people should just really take away from from this podcast? So I think this is around and I think the I, my key message around this is this is around the basics done impeccably well. Yeah, it's making sure you do that really good primary survey. So you've got that information. It's making sure that in the cardiac arrest patient, you've got really good quality, essential life support going on, that you're oxygenating and ventilating that patient. You're preserving cerebral perfusion by good quality chest compressions. You're preserving cardiac perfusion by good quality chest compressions. You're looking at the cardiac rhythm to understand if it's aberrant and whether it needs defibrillation. So you've got that process. And by doing that, I would suggest all of us, we should be managing these patients in AED mode pre-hospitally because it takes a cognitive load off us. And, and I say that to all of us at whatever level we are, use AED mode in children because it just reduces that. And it also means that defibrillator is looking for that VF. So if it is there, it goes to shock it without you needing to think about it and to avoid distraction and people not focusing on the screen. So I think that is really key. I then think it's about making sure we do what we need to do on scene and then we move the patient. So we de deliver the definitive interventions that we can on scene and then move without being on scene forever, without being distracted, understanding the group of patients who will need timely removal to hospital, be that the trauma patient who's bleeding where blood's not available pre-hospitally or bits like that, that that group of patients get moved, but we focus on kind of definitive intervention on optimizing the care for the patient in front of us and being really clear around how we do some of this and rehearsing those mental models that this, this is the stuff we will see very rarely how will we do it how will we get our heads into it what will we need to do and I think the final thing is also that kind of mantra around slowing down to speed up which we've talked about a little bit is making sure your actions are deliberate and planned that when you go to move and extricate the young person to hospital that you've planned that they're secure lines are secured everything's taped in as much as you can so that you don't then get that longer delay when something gets pulled out on scene listen mark that's fantastic and absolutely some of the salient learning points uh, are key to remember um, in any of these cases so uh, absolutely listen it just leaves me to say thanks for your time today and your engagement mark and i always appreciate your perspective so thank you mate thanks very much owen you're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.